Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, memoir are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I am very excited to have one of my favorite writers and people, E.B. Moore. She's going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Loose in the Bright Fantastic, which has, I think, one of the best titles I've ever heard. Uh, Loose in the Bright Fantastic was just released in May. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks so much for being on the show. Now, Liz's writing name is E.B. Moore, but I always call her Liz. So just so you're not confused by that. Um, And I think you changed it, right? Because there's another Liz Moore who's actually (laughs) an author. (laughs) There is another Liz Moore who is an author and that that people have gotten confused and gone to her launches and wondered why I was suddenly so young. <laughs> uh, but yes. Evie Moore is the name I used as a sculptor also. So I just hung on to it. Right. And hopefully you get some of her readers as well coming into your Hopefully that works that way. So E.B. Moore is a metal sculptor turned poet. She published a chapbook, New Eden, A Legacy, then, thanks to Grub Street's novel incubator, switched to writing novels. Her first two books, An Unseemly Wife and Stones in the Road, one of Kirkus Review's best books of 2015, are dark stories based on her family's Amish roots in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Moore, the mother of three, has received fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Yaddo, and the Vermont Studio Center. She lives with her partner in Scarborough, Maine. All right, Liz, can you give us a quick summary of the book so that we know what's going on when we uh, hear these first pages? Yeah, um, it's about a gray-haired woman who escapes from Mass General, and she's wearing only her hospital Johnny, a mink coat, and her dead husband's oversized wingtips. She's on the loose in uh, the Boston Public Garden. And when she's there, she uh, dips back into her past uh, without really meaning to. And she ends up um, having a homeless night. She goes from actually from the Ritz, tea at the Ritz, uh, to the South End. And she has homeless nights. And... um, then she invades a house that she, where she used to raise her children, and uh, she, there's a party, a dinner party going on there, and you'll see that in the opening pages. And uh, as her confusion continues, her daughter is beyond uh, hysterical, trying to figure out where she is and what's happening. And then her five-year-old grandson, or the Maggie's five-year-old grandson, runs away from home because he feels that the police aren't doing enough and he needs to go and rescue his grandmother. And he is known as uh, Mr. Major Amazing Man in his mask <laughs> and um, and cape. So she's, um, everybody it gets more frantic as it turns out that evidence shows that something ghastly has happened to them both. So that's it. Right. Okay. Let's hear these first pages. And everyone, um, you can find, there's a link to her pages uh, on the podcast notes if you want to follow along um, visually. I find that helpful myself. So uh, we'll be able to hear it that way. All right, Liz, go for it. Okay. Uh, Part one, home, the siren call. Chapter one, Maggie, Friday. Street after street, Maggie rabbits around corners, hurdles down alleys, down avenues, gray hair loose. 
fur coattails flapping, feet loud in her husband's oversized wingtips. Wearing his shoes keeps him close. Dear Dan, dear dead Dan. A cry on the wind pulls her homeward. Her breath fogs the air. She squints at signs, at house numbers, at doorways. Heels clatter. The racket ricochets off Victorian brick. Townhouse after townhouse, so like her own, their roofs all but invisible and swirls of snow. My babies. Panic squeezes her chest. Another alley, another corner, doorway after doorway, and finally out of the white swirl, her beloved number five. Thank heaven. Light spills through the etched glass. She pats a pocket of her inside-out mink. It's warmer that way. She pats the other pocket. Damn, no keys. Up the steps, she jabs the doorbell. Thumb hard at the button, once, twice. She bangs her fists on the glass. Claire, she shouts, Raj, nothing. She cups her eyes with blue-veined hands and peers through the bevels, past the vestibule, past the hall and the curbing stairs to the lights hazy in the distant dining room. Off on the left, an orange glow, the living room fire. She bangs harder. The glass could break. I don't care. From inside, a shadow approaches. It blots the light. A blurry face appears, nose to the other side of the glass. The sitter, yes. The girl fiddles with the lock. Tumblers click. The door open. A tall woman in velvet pants steps back as Maggie, along with a shower of snow, surges in. She stops by the stairs, a hand to the carved newel post. Her eyes half shut. She takes in the scent of wood smoke, and the last of her panic dissolves. May I help you, the woman says. Maggie recoils. You aren't the sitter. She flexes cranky knees, ready to. Where's Claire? Gripping the post, she steadies herself. What have you done with Raj? I'm sorry, the woman says with unnerving kindness. We have no Claire here. She rests gentle fingers on Maggie's sleeve. And no, Maggie's voice squeaks, no Raj? From the dining room, strangers at the table stare in silence, forks stopped halfway to their mouths. The woman's words stay soft. No, dear, no Raj. Candles on the table flicker, cold blue at the core. Where are they? But this table full of questioning eyes. What have they done with my grandfather's table? And my portraits, her ancestors' portraits, they're gone too. Come, the woman says, sit. It's no night to be out. She leads Maggie into the living room. Maggie's eyes lift to the ceiling medallion. They run along egg and dart moldings she'd reclaimed from years of painted abuse. She collapses on a stripy sofa she's never seen. The woman sits beside her and takes her hand. What's your name, dear? This new neighbor, what is her name? So good of you to drop by, Maggie says. You'll love townhouse living. Five floors running up and down, no need of a gym. See, she opens her mink coat. You'd never know I just had a baby. She pats the flat of her belly covered in rainbow spandex. She frowns at her one-piece outfit. She's dressed for the gym, not guests. She hasn't offered the woman a drink. And those people in Maggie's dining room, clearly they expect dinner. Maggie catches the scent of curry. Oh, hell, the timer didn't go off. She's up. Her mink falls to the floor. 
variegated spandex on full display. She's a splash of electric sunset headed for the kitchen. Halfway through the dining room, she stops. Dinner already loaded the plates. Her plate, too. It waits at the kitchen end of the table. Her chair at an angle invites her to sit. But first, won't you join us, she says to the woman following at her heels. At the other end of the table, the man in Dan's seat rises. He slips into the living room. Just like Dan, on the phone, dinner getting cold. The others keep staring. She clutches the top of the chair. Where's Dan? She looks behind her. Raj. She turns to her right. Twists left. Claire, Claire. The woman hooks Maggie's elbow. Come, dear. We'll... No, Maggie wrenches away. No. And that's right. it. That's the first chapter. And then we go into the second chapter. I think it is just important to note the second chapter is also in Maggie's point of view. And we get the tag the previous Tuesday. Um, and so this is a really smart way to do it. I think a lot of beginning writers think that they have to tell everything chronologically. And it's usually best if you don't <laughs> tell things chronologically, as long as you give the reader enough help um, to be able to, to follow where you're going. And what I like here, too, is that you're not giving um, a date tag that we have to look back on. So you just say Friday. Um, it's not Friday, August the 3rd, 19, whatever. And then you give August 1st and we have to go, wait, what was the date earlier? And we have to look back for it. So the previous two is all we need. And, um, actually I didn't even need to look back to remember if it was Friday. I just know I'm being thrown back in time. Um, I'm given enough of a hand there, but I don't have to, to do math. Um, and, and so that, that works very, very well. And then of course we're worried about her. And so when we go back in time, we're going to keep reading. Um, it's, it's a great way to, to cover over that white space because we're already, we have a question raised. Um, all right. Was this always how you began this book? Uh, no, I started it. Um, I started it with Maggie being in the hospital and her kids and grandkids coming into the room and that she's confused. She doesn't know what's happening. She, she's not sure who she is. She's not sure who they are. And bit by bit, uh, the characters start to come together and she begins to recognize them. And so each character is introduced. Um, and that stayed the first chapter for a long time. Uh, but I tend to like starting in the middle or starting at a crisis point. And also for me, this worked to sort of establish what was going on with Maggie, the fact that she was how confused she could get and to, to set up a, um, a dramatic incident and then go back. It just, it just seemed, um, seemed to work better for me that way. Well, two, we are with Maggie. When she gets to that door, we're also relieved. And when the door is opened, we're like, oh, good. You know, <laughs> here's her home we have that expectation set up and then that's overturned, but that we are, we are one with Maggie's thinking there. Um, and I think that works very well because then we become um, destabilized the same way that she does um, by, and then she makes that rather sad, very quick um, switch in which she thinks that the woman has actually come to visit her um and that she's not wearing the correct clothing um she's wearing this wild rainbow outfit which i love the description of um 
And so uh, how how far into the revision process did you go before you changed the chronology around and decided this to be your first chapter? Um, I think it was very late uh, that I was I was concentrating on getting a full first draft and then um, and then even beyond that, I think it it came late. I tend to try to to rewrite both the beginning and the end over and over and over again uh, just to experiment, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And then how did you get into this mindset? Because I think, this is a this is a difficult point of view to to do in a way that is believable, um, that is not overly sensitive, um, uh, not overly melodramatic, um, you know, uh, not making fun of the character or making us simply pity the character, but actually feel like we are we are one with the character. How did you get into that mindset? Well, having my mother live with uh, with me and my kids uh, for about ten years, it it became relatively easy to get into her mindset. Especially now that I am a little bit older than she was then, and so that made it even easier because all of a sudden, oh my, my my own fears of what could happen to me were in there. And uh, but having having lived with her for a long time. It was, I think, much easier for me to get into her mindset. Yeah. And so as we, um, and you just do it so well, as we move into it, I think we also see the poet in you. Um, street after street, Maggie rabbits around corners. So that use of the word rabbit as a verb is not um, something we would normally do, but I think it's perfect here because it allows us to really visualize her um, and to see her from afar in a way um, you know, I don't, I don't know if she would describe herself in this way, hurtling down the alley or that she wouldn't necessarily focus on her gray hair. Um, and you chose to do this in third person. Um, was there instead of first person? Was there a reason for that? I I have a hard time with first person. I've, I've tried it and, um, it just, it just doesn't work very well. So what I did with this one was to be in the close, close third. Um, but I give her thoughts, which are in first person. And yeah. so there's a little bit of her that's first person. And she sometimes even talks a little bit to the narrator. So that there's, there's a back and forth that happens. Yes. And so we was, get that was something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we get the, the dear Dan, my babies, thank heaven. Um, that's, that's considered uh, direct interior monologue. And that's something that you can do. That's when the distance between the character and the narrator closes so absolutely that the narrator actually disappears and the character begins to narrate her own story. Um, but it only, you only need to do it and you can only do it for very short blips mm -hmm. like this and it can work quite well. And there's authors that won't even um, put those in italics. They'll just keep it um, in the regular uh, text. So those are just options for you, tools for you, if you're worried about the third person keeping you far away from your character. Uh, I think it works quite well here. And there's also a bit of comedy too. You have Dear Dan and then Dear Dead Dan. You read that seriously, but I think it's a rather comic line. I mean, it's sad, <laughs> um, but it's also comic. And so I think that really wonderfully sets the tone 
um, of the book. And then Dear Dead Dan, we would expect her to be emotion, more emotional about it than she is. And we get the cry, almost her cry after that, but it's a cry on the wind. So there's just some interesting things that's happening with the text. Um, okay, so she gets to that door. Um, we're glad that she gets to that door. And, but you describe a woman who answers the door. The door opens and a tall woman in velvet pants um, steps back as Maggie, along with a shower of snow, searches it in. So not only the woman's physical reaction, but for me, the fact that she was wearing velvet pants, I initially thought, uh-oh. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Maggie, even though she comes from... A, a grand home. This is the kind of home that she used to have. Um, this is this is not her home anymore. And she's wearing her husband's old shoes, and she's wearing the um, the coat inside out because it's warmer that way. Um, and so we're kind of like, uh oh. And there's a certain dissonance there that I thought worked really really well. When did you first imagine this particular scene as setting uh, Maggie up and the and the kind of conflict that she goes through throughout the rest of the book. Ah, that's, that's hard to, it's hard to say because some of these, some of the incidents that happen in the book um, actually happened. Mm. Um, and this is one that didn't happen to my mother, but happened to me in reverse. I was the woman in. Oh, and so I knew that I had to fit it in someplace and I wasn't sure exactly where. And that's the whole thing about um, letting the whole novel play out because I'm never sure where various scenes might go or what might happen. Uh, and the, I tend to let the characters lead me to them. And so she eventually led me there. Oh, great. Um, you know, it's interesting because you allow that moment to sit um, the tall woman steps back, the reader thinks, uh-oh, and then we get the may I help you, and then we really think, uh-oh. So there's a moment of tension there in terms of what is going on, what is happening, and what's going to happen to Maggie. I think we just really sympathize with her quickly, which is important because Maggie at the end um, basically collapses emotionally, and that can be almost too much for the reader if we don't know the character well. But I think at this point, we learn Maggie as a character very, very quickly. Um, and so I think you earn it very, very well. And it also makes sense. So I was relieved, well, kind of relieved, you, you that she's kind, the woman that answers the door. So it's interesting that you actually were that woman. It says with unnerving kindness. Um, it made me think, I used the word conflict earlier. And even though the woman is kind, there is still conflict here, isn't there? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the woman has to figure out what to do with Maggie. Maggie has to figure out what to do with the woman. And they, they're they both oddly in the same situation. You know, how, how do they deal with each other mm -hmm. in the midst of this party? Absolutely. And, and, and that's important. They have, they have different intentions in the scene and that's what creates conflict. It's not that they have to be actually really directing directly battling it out or have completely opposing ideas um but it still works very well uh and then she just you just do that wonderful switch and when in which we sit switch into her mindset 
that this is her home and she's holding a dinner party. Um, she pats her belly. She's again, this, this wonderful uh, rainbow outfit. There's a line you have later. Maggie catches the scent of curry. Oh, hell, the timer didn't go off. She's up. Her mink falls to the floor. Variegated spandex on full display. She's a flash of electric sunset headed for the kitchen. I love that line. So again, I do keep feeling that the poet in you rise up in these pages. How do you feel that your past um, writing interests um, have informed what you do now, or even as 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 yourself as a, an, an artist, as a metal worker? How do you feel that that enters into your writing now? Well, definitely the um, the poetry enters in. It's something that I sort of can't help it. It just kind of invades what I'm writing, and I have to be careful not to get too carried away with it. Uh, but um, there was a second part to your question, which of course is uh, just well, I just I don't know if this is a part of it, but you are also a metal worker. I mean, is there yes. you you have always been an artist in many many different forms. How does that inform your writing? Uh, it's remarkably the same process. Uh, I mean, I got into writing after I had to stop doing the metalwork because I wanted to have some kind of an outlet uh, for the creativity. And because without doing something, I was going to lose my marbles. And uh, and so I went into writing and discovered that it was remarkably the same. You have to you you have a subject and you have to look all the way around that subject, look at it from every side, and try to figure out uh, what the what the motion of the figure is so therefore what the action of the of the book is and i was surprised by how much it was the same right right um and you also have other points of views in this book two other points of views um and how did you navigate that particularly the the young boy's point of view um what's his name for himself again i what was it again <laughs> mr major amazing man <laughs> mr major amazing man uh, was it difficult for you to do a young boy's voice? Um, well, I had some help because th this uh, Hank is remarkably like my uh, one of my grandsons. And so uh, I got into it that way and then just tried to get further and further into how I thought he would be talking and just tried to become that person. Uh, at one point when I was doing poetry, one of one of the uh, my teachers said, just take your character and go out into the world and be that character all day long. And, you know, it's uh, I did not put on a mask and a cape, although it was quite tempting to do. Um, but one of the things that I did do is make pictures um, of these various scenes. Um, so they turn out a little bit like uh, illustrations for the book. I mean, they're not because the book isn't illustrated, but I had a good time making collages. Well, like the cover. Um, right. that, that exactly. Yeah. And did you always knew you were going to use the boy's point of view? No, um, I didn't. It, it started out with just being Maggie's point of view. And then I realized pretty quickly uh, that Claire came across as, as a real bitch. <laughs> and <Yeah>. so, yeah. <laughs> I needed I needed to uh, to somehow or another get more into her point of view, so that so that the reader could understand why uh, she had these reactions, and so it became clear to me that she absolutely had to have a point of view, 
And then uh, Hank's point of view came along a little after that. Um, because I liked to, he, he had another slant on what was real. And so I wanted, uh, I wanted to have all three in the end, but it, it did develop very slowly. Definitely. And in some ways he parents the mother because he's the one that keeps faith with finding Maggie and make sure that they, they find her. And yeah, it's an, it's, it's, it's an interesting threesome. Um, now you have two previous very successful novels um, I worked with you on one of those books, which was a lot of fun. You made a lot of cuts to that book because that book, you also originally had three three points of views or two points of views. I forget uh, now. It's a while ago. I think it was two. I think what I had was basically the Maggie character as being a current day uh, section to the book. And then um, and then Maggie's uh, grandmother uh, in the in the old section. And um and it was awful. It just <laughs> didn't, it did not work. I could not make Maggie work at all. And I can't remember now whether I had her in first person or not. I might have, but it was more serious and I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And as you might remember, the incubator um, group said, no, this isn't working. And it was clear to me that it wasn't. So it was easy for me to just chop the book in half. And right. uh, let Maggie sort of fester for a while, which is what what happened. Interesting. Um, and that, well, it, it's 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 brave to be able to do to make cuts like that, but it's also re really freeing, mm. I think. Right. Um, yes. And to just and the problem with multiple points of views or even multiple timelines is that we as readers want to be we might want to be only in one of the points of views, or we might want to be only in one of the timelines. Um, and that is problematic because the reader is going to stop reading the book if we go into a timeline or point of view that we that's not working or that isn't as strong um, or they just might not buy the book at all. So it can be. I mean, what did you learn from your previous two novels in working on this book? What did you bring from those experiences to this one? Uh, I learned to trust my characters. Uh, and let them uh, let them have a certain amount of uh, free hand uh, to guide me where where they thought I should go, because the minute I tried to really be controlling, um, it would lose the spark. Uh, and it was much more fun for me as a writer to just to follow along. And then if I didn't like where they ended up or if it it seemed ridiculous, then uh, then I could there again, just cut it. Oh, I love that because because Maggie really is given free reign here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she goes into she goes into some pretty dangerous situations, and we really begin to worry about her and worry about how she's going to be. But then you're also able to introduce some really um, dynamic other characters and and show uh, the other side of even even homelessness, um, just the other side of the city in a way that I thought was a really in, in a really touching way. Yeah. Um, all right, Liz, I'm gonna have to let you go. But I think the fact that you just keep writing and, and keep turning out these wonderful books is, is truly inspiring for everyone. Um, I hope all of you can get back to your writing desks and get a lot of writing done today. 
Uh, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay, one last question for you, Liz. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Oh, I think don't get locked into the first pages that you put down, uh, either handwritten or on your computer. Just feel free to shift and change because you never know. So the first draft does not have to be, uh, in fact, for me, it, it never is exactly the same. Yes. You have to let Maggie loose. Yes, right? Right. right. <laughs> That's the only way you can have a book, let her loose. All right. Thank you so much, Liz, for being with us. I know people are going to really enjoy this book. And everyone else, have a fantastic writing day. Thanks a lot, Michelle.